Today's sermon comes from John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Growing up, my parents, and they still do today with the grandchildren, uh, threw scavenger hunts on our birthday. And the scavenger hunts would start with a little piece of paper that had this mysterious little clue on it to where you could find the next clue. And once you depicted it and deciphered it and you went to the next area of the house and you found it, whether it was in the refrigerator or by the TV or in a drawer, and you find the next clue, there'd be another little clue and it would take you somewhere else. And, and eventually, probably after 10 clues or so of marching around the house, you'd get to the, it's the big enchilada. This was the present, the birthday present, the big wrap box. Usually it was in the clothes dryer. Uh, that was probably 75% of the time. Sometimes they'd vary from that. But, but there would be this scavenger hunt, and they have continued it now with, with my children, my brother, my sister's children, the, the grandchildren. And when we're all together, if we celebrate a birthday, if it's one grandchild's birthday, all the other grandchildren follow along. It's like this entourage that moves throughout the house from clue to clue until we finally get to the big present somewhere in the house. The book of John is like a scavenger hunt. Because John records clues that drive us to who Jesus is. Now, he doesn't call them clues. He calls them signs. And this passage about the wedding at Cana is, as we see in verse 11, the first clue, the first sign that's going to tell us something about who this man Jesus Christ is. So verse 11 says this, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The entire meaning of this passage is wrapped up right there. We've got a sign, a clue, and then we've got what that sign or clue is supposed to do, and that is to manifest, reveal Jesus' glory. Now, what, what is a sign? Well, unique to John's gospel is he talks about signs, not miracles. When Jesus does a miracle, like here, changing water into wine, John calls it a sign because Jesus' miracles were never meant to be a raw display of power that you become enamored with. They were always meant to be signposts that were pointing to something about Jesus' identity, about who he is. And these signs, this is the first of them. They're going to see seven in the Gospel of John. This sign is to reveal Jesus' glory, to manifest who he is. 
And this is what Jesus meant in John chapter one, verse 51, when he said, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying is that heaven is open, and John records it as signs. At these signs, it's like heaven is open, and God's transforming power and his transforming love burst into this present world. Think about a day where it's overcast, it's gray, and it's cloudy. And every so often on an overcast day, what does the sun do? It'll, it'll peek through the clouds. Maybe the, the clouds part for a second. And there's moments that we're going to see in the book of John where, where the clouds part, so to speak, and the sun shines through. And we get this amazing picture of who Jesus is and his glory revealed front and center. So what is or what of his glory is revealed? Now, before we talk about the grace of his glory and the transformation of his glory, we've got to talk about the loss of glory. In the ancient Near East, in these village cultures, wedding celebrations were huge. They were were the party of the year. These were the chief celebrations. Almost the entire village would come. They would last for an entire week. Invites would go out. They were, uh, when the Jews, in fact, when the Jews thought about what heaven would be like, or when they thought about what the return of the Messiah would be like, the coming of Jesus, they thought about wedding celebrations, a big party like this. And so what we come upon here is one of these big parties, similar to if you go to a wedding and there's a big reception afterwards and there's good food and there's good drink and there's dancing and and you're connecting with old friends and family and it's just an amazing wedding celebration. Take that and extend it for a week and that's where we've landed in John chapter two. This wonderful party, but then we learn in verse three, something happens. The wine runs out. The wine runs out. Now, that's not just inconvenient. And remember, this is a week long. Wine running out would be an absolute embarrassment to the family. In fact, the bridegroom was the one responsible for the food and drink at a wedding banquet. And this bridegroom, if the wine ran out, this bridegroom would experience incredible embarrassment in a shame culture. Okay, so the wine runs out. But what I want you to see here is this is not just describing the wedding at Cana. The wine running out is a description of of life. Because the wine runs out, so to speak, in life. The wine runs out on what you and I paint as the the, the big celebration or the big event or the big relationship or the big success that we think is gonna bring this just amazing joy and fulfillment. And we've all experienced this at some point. The wine runs out. The party ends. (laughs) The thing we've been looking forward to that we thought when we get there, life will be great. And we get there and we go, is this it? Is this really all there is to life? The party ends. The wine runs out. I was reading an article uh, this past week, an ESPN article on Aaron Rodgers. He is the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. And this article was titled, The Search for Aaron Rodgers. And it described what he was feeling on the bus 
in the caverns of uh, Cowboy Stadium in Arlington, Texas, after Super Bowl 45, when he had just won the Super Bowl. He played an unbelievable game. Threw for like 300 plus yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, right? First Super Bowl victory. Listen to what this article describes Aaron Rodgers' feeling after this game. For years, Rodgers seemed convinced that the world didn't believe in him. He was either undrafted or, you know, he was a nobody. Nobody would draft him and give him a look. Then in an instant, he produced irrefutable evidence that the world was wrong. The overlooked, undersized kid had made it to the mountaintop. But when the Packers bus left Cowboys Stadium on that chilly night six years ago, he didn't feel like he had risen to a higher plane. Rather, he realized he was still looking for something, for a sense of clarity or purpose that was beyond his current line of sight. He said this, Roger said this, it's natural to question some of the things that society defines as success. When you achieve that, and there's not this rung, you know, another rung to climb up this ladder, it's natural to be like, okay, now what? Sitting on that bus, he thought, I hope this isn't it. He just won the Super Bowl. They had just thrown confetti and champagne in the locker room, and he sat on the bus, and what he generally is describing is this emptiness. The champagne ran out. The wine ran out. He realizes this is it. This is all there is to life. And maybe you've had that experience. Maybe it's not a Super Bowl victory. I don't think we have one of those in the audience this morning. But whatever it would be, some success, some mountaintop experience, some pinnacle, something you were, be, you were gunning for and you finally get there and you go, is this it? The wine runs out. Wine runs out on marriage at some point. <laughs> the wine runs out on your job at some point. The wine runs out on, on whatever success you've experienced. The, the wine runs out on your pleasure seeking. And the reason is, is because we lost the glory that we were intended to have from God in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. We we are designed to bask in the glory of God, to find our purpose and our meaning in the glory of God, to come alive in the glory of God. And we had that until sin entered the world, and that glory has been lost. And, And since that point, we have erected Glory substitutes. Glory substitutes to try to fill the loss of the glory of God. And we erect these substitutes and and they fail and wine runs out. And so what we find in this passage and what I want you to see is, is the truth and the loss of glory, the fallen condition, the wine runs out. But then what Jesus does in manifesting his glory, right in the midst of this party coming to a screeching, How does he reveal his glory? First, the grace of his glory. Look at verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them to the brim. Now these stone jars were for Jewish purification. What was that? Well, this comes and flows out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were God gave laws for cleanliness, purification, clean and unclean laws. And those, 
those laws were always meant to remind God's people that they were sinful, that God was holy, and that they needed to be cleansed. But those laws and and even the, the system, the ceremonial system around it for purification, they were signs that pointed to the reality that God was the one who would do the cleansing. Here's the problem, though. Over the years, God's people became enamored with these signs and these laws. And we read in Mark chapter 7, the first four verses, that they had, they had gone way beyond what God had prescribed for clean and unclean and gotten out of control because they believed, as they, as, they, as they started to focus on the sign and not what it was pointing to, they realized, wow, we got to get more and more to continue to purify ourselves and cleanse ourselves. And, and so you read in Mark 7, 1 through 4, just they, 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 they washed their hands before they ate when they were in the marketplace they washed their hands. They, they had traditions for washing copper pots and, and dining couches. And I mean, it was just out of control, which is why they said when Jesus and his disciples came on the scene and didn't wash, what are you doing? You need to wash. Right? But what we learn from that is, 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 is the need that we have for cleansing, but our inability to cleanse ourselves. And what I want you to see is that as Jesus comes on the scene, and it's almost comical. You have to set yourself in this setting. These jars were for purification. They were filled with water for purification. And what does Jesus do? He fills them with wine. He fills them with wine, as if to say, you don't need these anymore. And even John notes they were filled to the brim, which was to say, that the ceremonial purification was being fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus was the one that brought cleansing. You didn't need these jars anymore because Jesus was the one who was gonna bring cleansing. We sing it. What can wash away my sin? Not penance. Really working hard to convince God how sorry you are over your sin by punishing yourselves. That's penance. What can wash away my sin? Not goodwill. I'm going to do really, really good. I'm going to clean up my act, make God feel really you know, good about I'm serious about purity. No, not goodwill. What are we saying? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus cleanses us. There's this great scene in uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth where Lady Macbeth, who has just murdered King Duncan, right, with her husband to take the throne, there's a scene where Lady Macbeth, after murdering King Duncan, is scrubbing her hands feverishly scrubbing her hands. And she says, she says, out, damn spot, out, I say. She's, she's trying to get rid of this guilt that she has over murdering King Duncan. And that scene is so, it's so beautiful of a picture of one, our need to be cleansed of our guilt, to be cleansed of our shame, but then also our inability to do it ourselves, though we try our inability to get rid of our guilt on our own. You can't get rid of your guilt, but Jesus can. He can wash away your guilt. He can wash away your shame. He can forgive you. What's this look like? Well, let me take you back to the story. So in the middle of the wedding party, what happens? The wine runs out. And as I said, the groom, the bridegroom was in a world of hurt at this point. Now, what you'll notice, he didn't even know. But if the wine would have run out in this week-long wedding celebration, the shame he would have experienced, the embarrassment, and that was a shame culture, would have been tremendous. 
And look at what happens. Look at what happens. Jesus steps in and removes the shame. Jesus steps in and covers this man's impending shame by turning 150 gallons of water into 150 gallons of wine so that this party could continue. And, and what happened to this bridegroom? <laughs> he went from impending shame to what? Praise and honor. He went from zero to hero immediately. This party and, and the wine at the end of this party was like never before. He went from shame to honor, from guilt to glory. And here's the key. He did nothing to get that. Jesus did it for him. In fact, he wasn't even aware of the shame that was coming. And Jesus transformed his shame into honor. And Jesus did it all. That's the grace of the glory of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul, he tells the story one time of teaching this college student who had cerebral palsy. And he, and he writes this, you know what that looks like, spastic movements and garbled speech. But as is often the case, this student was very bright and capable. Sproul writes, one day he came to me vexed with a problem and asked me to pray for him. In the course of the prayer, I said something routine, words like, oh God, please help this man as he wrestles with this problem. When I opened my eyes, the student was quietly weeping. I asked him what was wrong, and he stammered his reply. You called me a man, and I've never been called a man before. You see, R.C. Sproul spoke honor over this man. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He takes your shame upon himself and he bestows honor on you. That's what we read in Ephesians 2 when it says you're seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. What that means is that God honors you in Christ as he honors his own son. From shame to honor, from guilt to glory, and Jesus restores his glory, the glory of his image in you. That that is the grace of the glory of Jesus Christ in half of the battle of the Christian life. No, I'll go more than that. 75%, maybe even more than that. 90% of the battle of the Christian life is seeing yourself as God sees you in Christ. Seeing yourself honored with glory, the glory of the original image that God intended for you in Christ, seeing yourself as God sees you. And so Jesus manifests his glory, and we see the grace of his glory, but that's not it. We also see the transformation of glory. As we read this story of the wedding at Cana, there's two questions that come to surface. One is, why wine? Why wine? What's the significance of it? And then the second question is, why does John choose to record this wedding banquet as the first thing that would be the sign pointing to the manifestation of Jesus' glory? Let's start with the wine. Why wine? What's the importance of it? Well, Jesus in this passage is fulfilling several really important prophecies. 
And I'm going to read two to you that are particularly insightful and I think encouraging. The first is from Jeremiah 31, 12 to 13. It says, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. That's Jeremiah. Now Amos chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow, shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Wine in the scriptures is symbolic of the, the blessing of God's kingdom breaking into this present and broken world. I mean, we read in those prophecies of gladness and of joy and of comfort, of fruitfulness. And typically, when we read those prophecies, we think, oh, yes, new heavens and new earth. Oh, yes, that's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. And yet, look what happens in this wedding at Cana. The master of the feast right, comes to the, to the bridegroom and says, you know, most... Uh, drink the good wine first, but you've saved the best till now. 150 gallons of water turned into 150 gallons of really good wine, abundance overflowing. And what Jesus was saying is that I am the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah, of the prophecy in Amos. It's now in me. Joy and feasting is now in me, Jesus said. And so we see that the wine represents the blessing of God's transforming power breaking into our lives and into this world. Second question, why a wedding banquet? Why does John choose to record this wedding banquet as the first sign? Well, it points to the wedding supper of the Lamb, marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 when we will sit down with Jesus and dine and eat in abundance and overflowing. So it's pointing us forward. And what we learn here is that the wine represents God's transforming power and that the wedding banquet represents God's transforming presence, pointing to the day when we will be in Jesus' immediate presence in his immediate glory that will fill us. And so we see both the power and the presence, and these together are pointing towards new life and new creation that permeates this passage. That, let me give you a couple of the, the subtle hints towards this in this passage. The first is, if you, if you look back at uh, John 1.19, where the Jews send the priests and Levites to investigate John the Baptist, from that day to this wedding feast is seven days. And John records it. He marks it out. 
four days up to Jesus meeting Nathaniel in chapter one, and then now chapter two on the third day, three days later. Seven days, he's mirroring the creation week. That this happens at the end of, of creation, right? In the beginning, John 1, 1, there's new creation stuff happening here. Uh, John 2, 1, in the, on the third day, giving hint to Jesus' resurrection. Right? This is speaking of new life, of new creation, of God's transforming power and presence, making everything new, starting with your heart. Now, how does that happen? We read in verse 11 that the disciples believed in him, in Jesus. Well, what happens when you believe in Jesus? What happens? You're changed, but how? I think there's two principal ways. The first, and this comes from the wine, the water transforming into wine, that God's transforming power is that God gives you a whole new set of desires, that he changes your wanter. That's a fundamentally what happens at conversion and salvation is that your wanter changes. Your desires change. It's not something that you do. God does it in you. He gives you a new heart with new desires. Let me give you an illustration of this. Whenever my family and I go to the Avenues Mall, this all happens just about every time. We'll be walking along and I am minding my own business. I'm not hungry, but I'll catch this waft of cinnamon and sweet sugary delight. Up until this point, I had no desire for food. I had no desire for dessert. But when these molecules of sugar and butter and spice hit a susceptible patch in my nose, I instantly crave a cinnamon bun from Cinnabon. Happens in the town center when we go by Auntie Anne's, same kind of deal. But I want you to see, the point is, my desires changed. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives you a scent of God's delight. And when the, when the scent of the gospel of grace makes its way into you, you bow the knee to Jesus. You believe. You have a new set of desires. You have a new heart. You desire Christ. You never desired him before. That you get a new set of desires. You're remade from the inside out. And then second, you say, what changes? You know, some of you maybe are contemplating salvation, contemplating Christianity, contemplating this man, Jesus. Who is he? Why should I follow him? What's going to happen if I follow him? Is my life going to change? I'm trying to tell you the, the ways in which it'll change. And you'll notice I'm not talking about the circumstances of your life changing, right? You'll get a new set of desires. Second though, Right? His transforming presence, which is symbolized by the wedding banquet, pointing to the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we'll be in the immediate presence of the one that made us. Right? His transforming presence gives you a new source of joy. That you have a new source of joy. One of the realities of our broken world and being born into a broken world with a broken heart, with a sinful heart, is that you are born into this world with your joy attached to circumstances. 
And you say, why is that the case? Well, if you go back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, their joy was attached to God. And then what happened in Genesis 3? Right? They rebelled against God. They said, no, we're going to go find happiness on our own in the creation. And so their joy attached to the creator at the fall became attached to creation. And we inherited that. And so our joy, we come out of the womb with our joy attached to circumstances. And what salvation does, and when Jesus manifests his glory and you believe in him, right, he, he, he gives you a new source of joy that's not attached to circumstances, but that's attached to his person. I vividly remember the day that Kim and I were married. I remember the wedding day. I remember the joy of it. I remember the joy of the consummation of the wedding night and of the, of the, uh, of the honeymoon and the delight of, as we were starting to experience this two becoming one. And yet any joy that you face or that you experience in marriage, any ecstasy that you experience in marriage, it, it pales into comparison of the joy and delight and ecstasy that your soul will experience in the presence of Jesus. Marriage, marriage is a parable of something much greater. And that's why the wedding banquet is the first sign that John records as he's telling us of the greater, the greater marriage, right? That will fully satisfy your soul and bring joy on a level that you've never experienced. And so we have this manifestation of Jesus' glory that, that transforms us, gives us a new set of desires, gives us a new source of joy. Pastor and Arthur, or author J.R. Vassar, he describes ministering in Burma and coming upon a broken Buddha. And I want you to listen to what he saw and what he experienced. One day we were prayer walking through a large Buddhist temple when I witnessed something heartbreaking. A large number of people, very poor and desperate, were bowing down to a large golden Buddha. They were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into the treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. On the other side of the large golden idol, scaffolding had been built the Buddha had begun to deteriorate and a group of workers were diligently repairing the broken Buddha. I took in the scene. Broken people were bowing down to a broken Buddha, asking the broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while someone else fixed the broken Buddha. The insanity and despair of it hit me. We're no different from them. We are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory-deficient people looking to other glory-deficient people to supply us with glory, looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand. Jesus manifests his glory to you. The glory that you were always intended to have the glory that was intended to fill you, give you joy, give you purpose, give you meaning, regardless of what circumstances are coming into your life. And the question is, are you embracing that? Have you embraced Jesus? 
the one who we see in this passage who breaks through the, the gray and dreary clouds, the ray of sunshine that comes in and his transforming love bursts into the present world. Have you realized that? Have you embraced it? Are you living out of it in union with Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this passage that gives us the picture of the glory of our Savior. The glory of our Savior that takes our shame and gives us honor. The glory of our Savior that takes our guilt and gives us glory. And Father, we confess that we, we look to these other glory substitutes, find ourselves wanting and pray this morning by your Holy Spirit. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would feed us, that you would feed us with the grace of your glory, that you would feed us with the transformation of your glory, that we would be remade, that we would be renewed, Father, thank you for this Lord's Supper that's a foretaste of what we will experience one day. We pray that in this time you would meet with us and that, Spirit, you would do a work in our hearts. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.